Today's episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast is proud to be partnered with Anchor Podcasts. Anchor is the easiest way for anyone to make a podcast. If you have a latent idea that's just kind of lying around for a show you would like to record one day, I'm confident that anyone could use this platform to host, record, and distribute your podcast, turning your idea into a reality. Anchor puts everything you need to be successful all in one place. You can start a new recording right from your mobile device. They also have convenient creation tools that allow you to edit your audio files so they sound crisp and great. Anchor also distributes your podcast for you, letting listeners find your show almost everywhere, including Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several others. And best of all, it's free. There are no hosting fees or monthly subscriptions or minimum listener counts, just an easy-to-use platform to get your podcast out there at no cost to you. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church here in Texinus, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am so happy to be coming to you on this uh, Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, whenever you're whenever you're uh, listening to this uh, particular episode. I'm excited to share with you a little bit uh, what's been on my heart, some a lot of thoughts I've been having lately as I've been studying and reading and, and uh, preparing for Advent sermons. There's lots of stuff that I have read that I just... It's so good, I just want to share it. <laughs> and so that's why I've kind of put that, some of those things in this episode. I'm also excited to share that I have an exciting uh, sort of Christmas episode coming out on Christmas Day, so uh, be ready for that too. So you get two podcasts this week. I'm excited to uh, just share some more things that are on my heart and things that I hope that you, uh, you can be impacted by uh, as well. So we'll just start right off, right off the bat. Uh, this past Sunday was uh, a Sunday in which I was able to preach, uh, fortunately, both times in the Sunday morning and Sunday evening services, and I was so excited to be able to do that. I have been going through some, quote, uh, Christmassy type uh, passages <laughs> throughout the uh, the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah's prophecy, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is often considered by commentators somewhat of a <laughs> fifth gospel. So along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Isaiah can sometimes be uh, set on the shelf right along those uh, just because of its, its uh, particular articulation of who the Messiah is and just the wealth of literature that's within the book that concerns the Messiah and his ministry and what he's going to do and what it's going to look like when he comes and reigns and what does that reign look like. All, all of those things sort of combined to make Isaiah a gospel book in a sense. Um, I think that was uh, Jerome who uh, first mentioned that, that that Isaiah is not just a prophet, he's an evangelist. <laughs> and uh, really, I think there's no better passage to sort of prove that, I think, than Isaiah chapter 9, in which we get that wonderful that wonderful chorus of, of a prophecy where we uh, hear about the son who is given to us, the child who is born to us, and he's his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, uh, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And uh, that's what I preached on in the Sunday morning service, going through that uh, wonderful prophecy of 
of the child, of this son that is born to, uh, born to us, given to us, and just what that prophecy means in light of what Isaiah, and as he's giving it to King Ahaz of Judah, uh, in the time in which Israel was divided into two houses, two kingdoms, what that prophecy might have meant in his context, along with what it actually means, as we know from the rest of Scripture, that this prophecy is very much indeed a messianic prophecy. So, that was what my intention was, and what we did, and what I hoped that the Spirit was allow, uh, allowed me to do um, uh, through the course of that sermon was just to sort of invoke this darkness that Israel feels that, you know, as we, what we walked through that a little bit in Isaiah chapter seven and eight, where it talks about how, how Israel has completely forgotten who their God is. And actually at the end of chapter eight, it talks about how they've turned to sorcery. They've turned to not just false gods. They've turned to wizards to sort of give them insight, give them, uh, light into the future, give them light and hope for future days. And what's interesting is that in the midst of all of that, you have Isaiah petitioning, crying out to them, return to the law, return to the testimony, which is a sense in which, uh, the sense in which we get this idea that Isaiah is so burdened that the people that he has been uh, called upon by God to serve and to minister to, uh, he, he, he's so burdened that they would have God's words in front of them. Which is what I think makes uh, the first title of this child so remarkable, is that he is the wonderful counselor. Uh, he's, a, he's the embodiment of God's words to us. That's where that wonderful part comes in. He's the extraordinary counselor who not just gives us the words that we need in our present moment. He is the word that we need, uh, such as where we get that wonderful, uh, wonderful passage from the opening of John's gospel in John 1, 1, where it talks about the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this word is also the light which pushes back the darkness. All of those themes really come together to make us see that that what Israel truly needed uh, wasn't just a king to help them reclaim some sort of majesty. They needed God's wonderful counsel that comes to them and saves them from themselves, saves them from their ultimate doom, ultimate gloom, which is the sin that that is wreaking havoc on their hearts and their souls. And uh, this is the wonderful promise that we have uh, at Christmas time. The wonderful promise that we have all throughout the all throughout the year is that this child who is born to us is God's word in Himself in human form. He's the embodiment of God's wisdom. He's the embodiment of God's heart, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the, the light of the world, God's word who comes and dwells among us. And uh, this is just one of the many ways in which he establishes peace. Um, that was, I forgot to mention that, that was sort of my, the premise for the sermon is that Prince of Peace is sort of the title that overrides all the other ones in the sense that that's sort of the form, the, the, the formative sort of operation that this child is going to come and establish. He's establishing peace by how he is establishing peace by being uh, God's wonderful counselor. But also, number two, he's establishing peace by being the mighty God. And as I sort of articulate, he's the mighty God who ends every battle. I love the verses in in, in Isaiah five, uh, 9, verses 3 through 5, where it talks about 
how all of these wars are going to end and how this one who comes is going to bring great joy. In verse 3, it mentions joy four times, um, and it mentions how they can have the joy, as it says at the end of verse 3, as those who are dividing the spoil. (laughs) They are having the joy of, of enjoying all of the things that they have acquired after the spoils of war, after the spoils of of victory. And then it talks about in verses 4 and 5, just about who actually is the one who was victorious. It is this mighty God who ends all these battles as and he and he eventually in verse five it talks about how he is burning all of the weapons of war. All of the instruments of their warfare are going to be put into a furnace and burned, which is a striking image that these instruments of war that secure your peace or that you put your trust in to secure your peace, they're no longer necessary. They're no longer needed because the mighty God who is coming, who is now here, is the actual Prince of Peace who establishes peace by making it himself. And I, 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 I'm so, I was so glad to sort of be studying this passage just because I love how it says in verse 4 that how he's going to establish all of this peace, well, he's going to do it as in the day of Midian, which, which is just a wonderful little, it's, it almost appears like a throwaway. It almost appears like Isaiah is just throwing this, this casual reference in to talk about, uh, this victory. And yet it's so important because if you know what the day of Midian is, it's the, it's the moment in which Gideon overruns uh, the Midianites back in Judges 6 and 6, 7 and 8 where we have that wonderful story of the mighty man of valor, Gideon, which, if you know the story, he's not very valorous, he's not very heroic. Uh, in fact, he's constantly doubting God. And so this allusion to Gideon and the day of Midian, so to speak, is actually to reference how God promises to Gideon before he's even lifted a finger that I am going to deliver this enemy of yours into your hands. It's as good as done already because of my words, because my words are true. God alone gets all of the victory on the day of Midian, and so it is in this day. So it is in in Isaiah's day when he's giving this prophecy that Israel's victory is going to be a victory such that it all of all of the the credit, all of the all of all of the burden of this victory is on the Lord's shoulders. It's on the shoulders of this child. It's on the shoulders of the son that was going to come to them, be given to them. He's the one that's securing their victory. And I love that that striking image that even before they lift a pinky to fight for themselves, deliverance has already been confirmed and promised and certified to them that they can be sure of it. Uh, this is what I think is invoked by that wonderful allusion to the day of Midian. And then we were talking about that uh, the last sort of title that is mentioned there in verse 6 is that he is the everlasting father, which is a wonderful a wonderful title just because it also talks about in verse 7 how this child is going to sit on the throne of David and that he is going to be the true and the better king of Israel that they have always longed for, that they have always uh, sought after. And this is who Jesus is. He is the true and better king of Israel, the son of David, who is going to sit on David's throne, which is a wonderful allusion to uh, the Davidic promises in which God promised to uh, David back 
in Second Samuel chapter 7 that his throne was going to be established forever, that there was coming a king that was going to sit in his house and establish his kingdom forevermore, forever and ever, till ages on end. And this is what is being confirmed uh, by this wonderful promise. It's, it, it is a wonderful promise only because, too, uh, at this time, of course, Israel really had no memory of this promise. They, or perhaps if they did, it was only a faint memory. It was a legend. It was something that they uh, could look back on and not really believe that it's true. Because what would make them believe that it's true, uh, considering all of the the dismal, gloomy state of affairs that they are now living in? Well, nothing really, except to hear from this prophet and hear him say that all of those memories that you have, all of those legends of this, this wonderful promise, concerning David's house, David's throne, David's kingdom, they're all true. And there's coming a one who's going to fulfill them all. And it's the child, the son given to you, born to you, born on your behalf. Uh, and this is what we have at Christmas. This is the wonderful promise is, is that this one that we look to, uh, this one that's in the manger is the one that's fulfilling all these things, that's performing all these things. And the wonderful line at the end of verse 7 in chapter 9 of Isaiah is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, he's going to do this, he's going to perform this, which it, it just carries this, this, this striking message that all of these things that are hanging in the balance, God's zeal is going to accomplish them. Not our efforts, not our might, not our abilities, not our insight, not our intuition, not our strength, not none of that. None of that accomplishes these things. Only God's zeal accomplishes these things. He's the one who performs this. He's the one who promises peace, and he's the one who makes peace. And I am so glad to hear that message. I'm so glad to be able to to uh, hope in that message because it's a message that we need it's 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 the message of Christmas. So uh, that was my Sunday morning sermon. I was so blessed to be able to uh, to be able to deliver that one. Uh, I am so thankful to be able to preach from Isaiah. It's such a wonderful book. It's a book that's that has a lot to say, and so there's always a lot to say when you're studying from a book like that. So uh, I hope you listen to that to that episode uh, or to that sermon, excuse me, and uh, I, I hope that you will be blessed by it. In the Sunday evening uh, message in, in our time of worship, I. I was uh, continuing on in my series through uh, Peter's letters. So I've been in a series going through First and Second Peter for a little bit. I had taken some weeks off um, just because of scheduling and, and whatnot. And I got back into it last week, and then in this past week I did as well. Uh, and I, ju I just parked on a couple verses, five verses from the end of First uh, Peter chapter 3, in which Peter makes this striking connection between Noah and the flood and believer's baptism. So I took some time to talk about baptism and just how I believe baptism should be defined throughout the scriptures. Now, uh, many of you who are listening to this might be of the Baptist denomination or sort of Baptistic in your beliefs, uh, meaning that you believe that baptism is by, immersions for, by immersion for those who are regenerate. And even if you don't, I think, believe or 
if you are not totally in line with that sort of uh, viewpoint, I, I hope that you can benefit from this episode in which I just really give the Baptistic version of that passage. <laughs> I'm sure if a, if a Lutheran, one of my Lutheran friends from from Christ Hold Fast, maybe or something like that, they'll they'll tell me that um, it, it means something different. But I love the allusions that he has in here, just to the flood, to baptism, what it means, death and resurrection. All of these things are combining in this wonderful passage that make us remember our baptism. And I think that's something that I am stealing from Luther. I think Luther mentions this in his commentary on First Peter, uh, Martin Luther, that is, and he is talking about baptism there and all these sorts of things. And he, he uses that phrase, remember your baptism. And I think that's something that has always struck me because as a Baptist, I can say that it, that's not something that I put a lot of weight in. Um, the moment of faith, uh, sort of confession and contrition and all those sorts of things, uh, I, it's almost like I put more weight into that than I do the moment when I was baptized. And I think that's almost to our detriment. Uh, it's almost to our detriment that we don't keep the baptism event uh, sort of in our minds as sort of this this distinguishing mark and sign that you believe in Jesus's death and resurrection and that in your belief in Jesus's death and resurrection you are identifying with him in his death and resurrection through this 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 sort of memorialization of it in baptism you're combining all those things faith and allegiance and hope and devotion and trust all of these things are coming together in this baptism event in which we are put under the water and raised, which always symbolize death and symbolize death and resurrection. And I think that's something that I think uh, I too want to keep more at the front of my mind is just what baptism is and why it's so important that that baptism is something that <laughs> that should be at the forefront of my mind. It should be something that I can look back to and say, there's the moment, there's the moment that, that God brought me out of my sin and raised me to new life, to walk in newness of life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. So uh, that's what I was striving to to uh, convey through that message, and I hope that it came through, um, and I hope that you were encouraged by it. Uh, it. It was, it's a, it was a, it was a message that was not difficult to study for, but it was a message that I really wanted to articulate all of the points well. And I hope I did that. I pray that you're blessed by it. Um, it it's always a blessing to study the scriptures, but it's also a blessing always to uh, study uh, sort of the the things that we hold dear in our faith. So as a Baptist, <laughs> studying about baptism ought to be something that bring me, brings me great joy and, and hope. And, and uh, I, I, it certainly did. And so I, I pray that it, it did to you as well. So make sure to listen to that sermon. Uh, and so those were the sermons I preached this weekend. Um, and I'm so grateful to be, I was so grateful to be in the pulpit. And I, and I can't wait for this week. So this week, looking ahead a little bit, uh, I'll be preaching a, a, a brief sermon on Christmas Eve for our Christmas Eve service, but I'm also really excited about Sunday uh, in, in continuing on with some some different passages and different sermons and different places that we can go to to uh, to proclaim God's truth and grace for lost and uh, hurting people. So that's what we're going to do. So uh, those are my sermons. Make sure you go listen to those, and I hope you're blessed by them. 
Um, really quick before we get to the rest of the show, uh, there's a lot more I want to cover. So, uh, but before we do that, I'm just going to take a quick word and share some, uh, a word from this show's presenting sponsor. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. All right, now on to the rest of what I wanted to get to in today's episode. Uh, what am I reading lately? Well, I've been trying. Uh, I think I shared this a couple weeks ago, and if not, I'm going to reshare it again here. <laughs> Just that I'm trying to finish out all of these books that I have reading right now. If I, so I'm, as I read books, I keep notes. So like if you go, I, I use this app called Simple Note. Uh, it's because it's, it's simple. It, it's clean and it's nice in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of distracting elements to it. It's just, it's just text and it's just notes and folders and tags. So anyways. Uh, whenever I'm reading a book, I make a note for that specific book in which I can copy down, uh, specific quotes or things that I want to remember. And if I, <laughs> if I told you how many notes were in my currently reading folder of my simple notes app, it would probably just, well, I have 36 in there. So I'm currently reading or in the midst of reading 36 different books. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know how undisciplined that is. <laughs> I know how undisciplined that is, but I get just I find these books and then I just want to read them. I just want to, I just want to open them up and just read them because they look so exciting. And then I find another one and I know that that's just revealing some sort of, you know, bad part of my heart and soul. I don't, I don't know, maybe. Um, but anyways, I'm reading 36 different books right now. So I am in this next more than a year. So, uh, I, I, as I mentioned in the last episode, I'm not going back to seminary till next winter or the fall term, so to speak. So I'm going to use this time, the time that I have off to finish all these books or at least <laughs> whittle it down as much as I can. So that's my goal. So one of the books I've been trying to finish for actually a long time is, uh, Stephen Ting's, uh, lectures on the law and the gospel. So if you don't know who Stephen Ting is, he was, a, uh, was an Episcopalian minister back in the 1800s. Uh, I think in New York, it was either Philadelphia or New 
New York. Either, anyways, it was up in that sort of region. And this is just, and it's, it's 24 lectures. So I'm in the midst of some of the 12 lectures that he includes in this volume on the gospel itself. And it's just such an excellent resource and proper articulation and distinction between these two words that God has given us, God's law and God's gospel. So if you re, go, go to, I'll, I'll invite you to this, go, go to 1517.org and look at some of their law and gospel sort of distinction posts. You can find stuff on there. Distinguishing between law and gospel is something that I was introduced to several years ago through my sort of friendship with some of these guys at Christ Hold Fast, 1517, and so forth. And it's just been such a helpful way to read the scriptures, to distinguish between these two words and the purposes of God's words behind them. And it actually, uh, I think, has enhanced the way I read the Bible. And, and Stephen Ting's lectures are deep. They're very they're they're very meticulous and he goes through things in a very very pointed way but what i love is that the he because he's so uh, particular he al- he allows themes to develop very strongly and um there's nowhere better seen in these paragraphs I'm going to read to you. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the freeness of the gospel. And this is what Stephen Ting says. Listen to what he says. He says, quote, the unsearchable grace of the gospel is displayed in the freeness with which it offers every blessing to man. It requires nothing to be done by us in order to merit its blessings. It never puts us upon earning an interest in the mercies which it has provided. To the utmost meaning of the terms, every blessing of the gospel is a free gift of God to man. The whole amount of mercies, he continues, and privileges which the gospel bestows are, I love how he says this, they are unclogged with any conditions. The gracious invitations which it addresses to men are entirely unlimited in their application, and it comes to creatures who can do nothing to deserve its blessings or to acquire an interest in in its glorious promises, and presents itself as a perfectly suitable uh, to their wants, by offering freely and unconditionally to their acceptance all the mercies they can desire. I love how he articulates that. Just how free this gospel is and all of the, the things that it holds up to us, the, the, the wonderful blessings and privileges that are just bursting at the seams of the gospel, of the gift of the gospel that God is so desirous of us that we would enjoy and believe in. It's all free. It's free, unclogged from any conditions. There's no fine print. There's no qualifiers. There's no provisos. There's no conditions. All of it comes to us unclogged, free. And this is the unsearchable grace of the gospel. I, I, I cannot recommend this volume enough. I put a link in the notes of this show. Uh, go to that link, by the way, because you can download the PDF for this volume for free. You can read all of these lectures over on Google Books. You can read it and you don't have to pay for it, which is just amazing. This is, uh, take advantage of this. Definitely read it. It's, it's so worth your while. Um, they're in-depth, really in-depth lectures, but I think you'll really enjoy them. So, 
definitely take advantage of that. So that's what I've been reading lately. I'm trying to finish that. I'm, I'm determined to finish that series of lectures and I'll have, um, I'm already formulating a blog on sort of reflecting on all of those lectures and what they mean and sort of just putting it into context. And so be on the lookout for that. So what's been helpful recently this week? Um, there's a series of essays that are being released over on the Center for Pastor Theologians, uh, which is a great resource, by the way, for pastors who are really encouraged to be more sort of um, theologian-like, I guess you could say. That's not a good way to pronounce it. But anyways, John Clark and Marcus Johnson uh, have a series of essays that they're releasing over there throughout this sort of Advent season on the doctrine of the Incarnation. Um and what I love about what they do, because at Christmas time, it can sometimes feel like we are hearing the same things over and over again. We hear about Luke 2, and we hear all the same sort of stories, the same sort of songs, and everything can kind of feel redundant. And um, there's a way in which I can agree with that, but there's also a way in which I think that reveals a lot about us and we, just how sometimes we just get kind of bored with what we hear. <laughs> but what I love about what um, what John and Marcus are doing in these essays is they're sort of, not sort of, they are uh, making a very strong argument that the incarnation is not just a peripheral doctrine of our faith. You know, sometimes I think that that, that we, we sometimes, even if we're not explicitly thinking that, we're sort of implicitly thinking that, that the incarnation, that sort of stuff, Jesus coming to earth as a baby, that's, we gotta save that for Christmas. We gotta save all of our preaching about Jesus coming as a baby for Christmas time, because that's, that's when it's important. That's when we need to hear about it. <laughs> Which is actually completely, I think, false. <laughs> um, because the Incarnation is not just a, a side doctrine that's sort of important, but not as important as other ones. Actually, what, what John and Marcus are articulating and expressing through these essays is that the Incarnation is actually central to everything we believe. And in fact, you, you have the Incarnation at one end and you have the Resurrection at the other end. Those are the bookends of our faith. Those are the pillars of what we believe, that Jesus came as a man, and yet he wasn't just man. He was man and God at the same time, and the resurrection proves that. The incarnation establishes it, the resurrection proves it. The incarnation is absolutely vital to what we believe. And in fact, this is what they say. John and Marcus, they write, quote, at the very center of the Christian faith is the supreme mystery that the Word became flesh, that in the person of Jesus Christ, God participates unreservedly in the same human nature that we ourselves possess. <laughs> That's a strong statement. Same human nature, by the way, yet without sin. I, I brought this up in my sermon on Sunday, that, yes, he, he, he participates in our nature, yet without sin, but we have that wonderful verse in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, where it talks about we who have uh, sort of been created in flesh and blood, that Jesus, this Jesus who is better, this one who is who has come, the Son of God who has come to be made a little lower than the angels, it says, it says, he has come to participate in the same, meaning he has come to participate in flesh and blood just like we have been made to participate in. You know, I don't think we often keep that at the forefronts of our minds like we should. 
It's the grandest miracle of all that God's remedy for man's sin, your sin, my sin, is an infant <laughs> that's being held by its mother in a manger. This is what makes the Incarnation so, so remarkable and why it should be so cherished and upheld to the highest degree of essentialness, if I can use that word, to our faith. It's critical to what we believe that the Incarnation is true and it's there and it's always there. It's not just something that we should preach about in December. Every December of every year is just suddenly when the Incarnation is important. No, the Incarnation is important all year round because it means that Jesus is God and man at the same time. And because of that, he is the one who is perfectly suitable and capable and able to handle our sin in a way that puts it to death. Listen to what they write. This is John and Marcus writing again. They say, The incarnation accomplishes the severe mercy of rendering absurd any notion that rapprochement between God and humanity is accomplished from the side of humanity. We do not seek and find a reclusive God. He pursues and overtakes a rebellious people. We do not perforate, perforate his unapproachable light. He penetrates our unsearchable darkness. We do not interrogate the Jesus of history to excavate the God of eternity. That infinite and eternal God storms space and time to confront us face to face in the face of Christ. The incarnation scandalizes our desire for heroism without humility, for glory without grace, for human ascent without divine descent. That is because the incarnation sets before us the unsettling yet liberating reality that rapprochement between God and humanity is accomplished only and ever from the side of God. What better time than this Advent season, they continue, to retrieve and rejoice in the comprehensive and monumental significance of the eternal word become flesh who left no aspect of our sin-ravaged humanity untouched and unreconciled. Those words, they blow me away. I, I, I've been so struck during my studies this Christmas season to not let Christmas messages stay at Christmas. <laughs> to not just let the time when I'm supposed to preach about the Incarnation be the time that we always expect. Christmas in July should be a normal thing. Incarnation in preaching in April should be a normal thing. The incarnation is vital to what we believe. To keep this, this in, important truth at the forefront of all of our devotional thoughts and spiritual thoughts. That's what Advent is here for. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> It's what we should remember. So what should you remember, actually? That leads me into the last segment of today's show. The importance of Jesus' birth. His assumption of humanity. That Him coming to earth is Him taking on our nature yet without sin. And because of all that, because Jesus takes on flesh, there is now a body to serve and die in our stead. To take our punishment. To take our condemnation. And put it to death. To free us to a life of service to a life of reconciliation. That's exactly what Jesus did. It sounds hokey to keep the reason for the season, <laughs> to remember that. Um, but that's really what we should do. The incarnation is the reason for the season. 
And there's, there's no, there's no better reason out there than that. There's no better, there's no, no better thing to keep in your mind than Jesus taking on flesh for you. This, my friends, is what Christmas is all about. Thanks so much for listening. This has been another episode of Pastor Brad's Corner, volume number 23, something that I'm so excited to continue to be doing in the next year, uh, just talking and sharing with you more things that have been on my mind. So I hope you've been blessed by this particular episode. Uh, if you're not already, go subscribe to the Ministry Minded Podcast over on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but I just uh, thank you so much for all your support, all your prayers, all your encouragement. Uh, you... You mean a lot to me, so thank you for allowing me to just have this space to share and to think out loud, so to speak, and to reflect and to uh, continue ministering to you, I think, in, or in, I hope in ways that are beneficial to you. So uh, I'll see you in the, on the next episode. Uh, blessings. Have a great one. 